Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. For those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ... They do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even through your body is subject to death because of sin. The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation but it is not to the flesh to live according to it, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the spirit you put to death, the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Amen. Thanks so much, Phil. Uh, This week I was googling up the term spirituality. Uh, just curious to see what I came up with when I looked on the computer. And here's, um, here's what I came up with. There is no single or widely agreed on definition of spirituality. Right? Isn't that enormously helpful? <laughs> spirituality. One scholar said that he had researched the, uh, the, the term and discovered 27 definitions of spirituality with had, which had almost nothing in common with each other. Right? 27 totally different. Uh, He said it it includes a sense of connection to something bigger than ourselves and it typically involves a search for the meaning of life, spirituality. It is a really vague, elusive, soft putty sort of term, uh, the whole question of spirituality. If you're a follower of Jesus, that is if, if you're a Christian, you know that essentially a relationship with God is a spiritual experience you'll know that that is the case. That is, uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, God himself, brings us into a true and full relationship with him, Father, Son 
and spirit. But here's the thing. Uh, Christians do describe their relationship with God in very different terms when it comes to the question of what a relationship, a spiritual relationship with God looks like. Uh, some talk of a relationship of uh, enormously deep intimacy, you know, involving profound emotions, uh, a relationship where God um, speaks to them and guides them at different points as they go through their life. In fact, in all sorts of decisions. Uh, yeah, I was talking to someone just this week who said, who was talking about this sort of thing, and they said, you know, when you get that Holy Spirit rush, you know, and I wasn't quite sure actually what that meant, to be quite honest, but uh, but I but I got what she was saying at that point in terms of her own experience of God. Some people describe their relationship with God from a spiritual perspective in that way. But for others, uh, it can sound a little bit more like a uh, a flat pack kit from Ikea, their relationship with God. Uh, let me explain. You know how you get a, uh, a flat flat pack kit from Ikea and what it comes with is instructions on how to assemble it? Well, people think that way about their relationship with God. You know, God has given us his flat pack instructions, the Bible, and essentially God gives us those instructions, withdraws to a distance and uh, leaves us to our own devices. He rules from afar and we are to work out from the scriptures how it is we live our life, lead our lives, and then in due course we die, and we, we go to heaven, and then we review what happened and make plans accordingly. You know, uh, People do, I think, sometimes feel that way. These three weeks, we're looking at Romans chapter 8. It does summarise the first seven chapters of this book. You pick that up in verse 1 of chapter 8. Therefore... It's the therefore that summarises everything that had gone beforehand. Therefore, and there are big truths that have come beforehand. How we're right by God, by faith in Jesus. Essential thing that's argued in great detail. The way in which God justifies the unrighteous. That is, all of us, we don't deserve a relationship with God, but God brings us into that relationship. And we turn to Romans 8, and it is a wonderful chapter. It starts with no condemnation before God, and you get to the end of the chapter and it says no separation. No condemnation, no separation. Wonderful truths. But the thing that is remarkably different about Romans chapter 8 is the emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Uh, If you were to try and guess how many references to the Holy Spirit in the first seven chapters of Romans, yeah, what would you guess? Uh, I'll give you some options, all right? I'll give you 0 to 5, 5 to 10, and 10 to 15, all right? As the number of references to the Holy Spirit, right? And see, and you've got to vote, okay? I'm going to get you to vote, right? How many do you think? Right? Who thinks there are 10 to 15 references to the Holy Spirit in the first seven chapters of Romans? Okay? Who thinks B is always the best option, 5 to 10, right? Play the cards both ways. Who thinks 0 to 5? Right? Okay, the not to fives actually do have it. There are two, two references to the Holy Spirit in the first seven chapters of Romans. Now we've only had 17 verses of this chapter read, and without looking at it and cheating, right, how many references do you think there are to the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8? I'll give you the same three options, right? Not to five, five to ten, ten to fifteen, alright? Not to five, okay, five to ten. Okay, 10 to 15. Okay, who didn't vote? <laughs> right? The people who didn't vote were correct. Okay, 
And the reason for that is because there's over 20 references to the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. Right? Sorry, I tricked you. <laughs> I should never do that. I should have more integrity, I know. But, uh, but see, two for seven chapters, more than 20 in chapter 8. Guess what Romans 8's about? Right? There's, like, there's a real focus on the work of God's Spirit here in chapter 8. So how does God work in our lives by his Holy Spirit? As an outline you've got there, you'll probably find it useful because it's a little bit detailed. And if I get lost, you won't if you've got the outline. And uh, why don't I just pray that God will, in fact, instruct us from his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who does speak to us, but you're also a God who grabs hold of our lives in every respect, uh, our minds, our hearts. And Father, we pray that as we reflect on this, your word today, you'll give us insight and understanding so we might faithfully serve and love and please you. Uh, Father, graciously go before us, we ask. Amen. Okay, the Holy Spirit. Verses 1 to 11 focuses on the way in which the Holy Spirit sets us free. Sets us free. Listen to verse 2. The law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, the picture here is of uh, slavery and freedom. But the slavery that's on view is not the... Often we think of racial slavery, uh, the the American situation with slaves imported from Africa. We think of slavery in that way. But what's on view here is a not racial slavery, but a slavery to sin. And you know that experience. Uh, you know the experience of finding yourself caught up in a sin, being determined to actually get rid of it, uh, something that dishonours God, and then finding yourself drawn back into it time and time again. It's that sort of slavery that's on view, and that's a way that Romans describes the person who doesn't follow the Lord Jesus Christ, someone who's enslaved to sin. And there are consequences as a result of that. But then we get through verse 2, we discover through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set us free. Freedom from slavery to sin by God's work in us through his Holy Spirit. Now how does that happen? Well, verse 3, God did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Now, these, this is capturing big truths that you, you can explore in more detail in the first seven chapters. But the picture is, is very clear here. God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world. He died on a cross, and in dying on the cross, he took the punishment and consequence for sin on himself. And as a result of him taking the punishment, he has the ability to offer freedom to others who sin so that they can be forgiven and have life in relationship with God. Jesus is condemned for our sin, not us, when we put our trust in him. But here's the question I want to ask. How does the Holy Spirit figure in all this? I get the fact that God sends Jesus, he dies on the cross. So where does the Spirit fit? This is a chapter all about the work of the Holy Spirit. How does the Spirit fit into this equation? I want to suggest to you that you cannot understand these truths, the truths of being forgiven, of not being condemned by God, of never being separated by God, 
uh, unless God's Holy Spirit brings that conviction into your mind and your heart. It's an impossibility. Uh, when I was a university student, I was not a Christian, and I became a Christian uh, while I was studying on campus at Adelaide University. Now, the key turning moment for me was when I was in a supermarket stacking shelves. And you wouldn't have thought, well, it should have been reading the Bible or something like that, but I wasn't. Uh, I was in a supermarket. What I was doing, and if you know the task, I was in a cold supermarket putting things on shelves. And it's not a, not a taxing mental exercise, right? Uh, this, But it pays okay. Uh, so I was doing it to get through uni. And while I was doing this, I had this extraordinary conviction of my sin, of my failure to treat God properly and other people properly. It was like I had this um, DVD playing in full surround stereo sound, you know, going of all the highlights of my failures in life. And it it was actually, it was horrible um, to be confronted with with who I was. Uh, Now, as I look back on that, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but that was God by his spirit convicting me of really where I stood before him and my failure to honour him properly. And that was a key to me moving on and turning and putting my trust in the Lord Jesus so I would understand forgiveness of sins as a result. So here's the question I want to ask. Do you know freedom from guilt, from sin, from being condemned by God? See, do you know that because the Spirit has convicted you of what God has done for you. If you know it, it's because the Spirit has convicted you. The Spirit sets you free. The Holy Spirit transforms your mind. Look at verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Uh, The flesh that's being spoken of here is the sinful nature, the tendency uh, to sin. And all that means is leaving God out of the equation. That's the tendency. The spirit uh, is really just talking about the way in which God wants us to live. When it speaks of the mind here, have their minds set, it's not so much thought processes or, or brain function that's on view it's talking about um, what absorbs us as people, you know, the very ambitions of our hearts and our, our minds, our goals, our fears, our purposes. What it's saying here is that by his Holy Spirit, God transforms our, our life focus in a wonderful way. Now, Jeff's already spoken about, uh, I think there are five people from this congregation who are not here Uh, to listen to me preach on Romans 8, because they're down at CV. Okay, now that's a weekend down at Victor Harbour for people to explore whether they want to change direction in life from the vocation that they're currently occupying and to move into a life of full-time vocational ministry. Now, what causes people to think about doing that? to change their whole life orientation in that way. Why take it? It's a transforming of your mind, transforming of your whole life to think about what's important. Now, 
get me wrong, I'm not sort of um, saying the only way you can know if you've got the Holy Spirit is if you do what I'm doing, right? full-time gospel work. That's not the case. Uh, but it's that life orientation that's reflected in that that is the case. The way in which you're gripped by the very purposes of God in this world as being of ultimate importance. See, people sometimes, I used to do law, people sometimes ask me, do I miss doing law? You know, now that I'm in full-time vocational work. And let me say, I loved practicing law. It was really good fun and it was worthwhile. Uh, but it doesn't compare with the privilege I have now of meeting with people constantly to read the Bible with them, to encourage them to become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ or to grow stronger as his followers. Now, that's not the preserve of vocational people like me. I take it that's at the very heart of the Christian life, that desire and that heart and that ambition. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also transforms our thinking about the people around us. Listen to what's said in verses 8 and 9. Those in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Remember, flesh is that which is not in relationship with God. That's the way it's being spoken of. And in verse 9 it goes on and says, if anyone doesn't have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Now, let me ask you this question. Is this saying that if you do not have the Holy Spirit, that is, you're not a Christian, therefore it is impossible to please God? Let me try and just elaborate that a bit more. Is this saying that anyone who is an agnostic or an atheist or a Buddhist or a Muslim cannot do anything good in order to please God? After all, aren't there people who are unbelievers, people who are not Christians, who are kind and generous and good living? See, what is this saying? You need to understand the argument of Romans to get what is being the point that's being made here. The argument of Romans is that no one, no one in this room, no one who has ever existed, can by their own efforts achieve a relationship with God. There's just an impossibility. Human beings cannot do that by our own volition. We're all cut off by our sin. But if God is at work in you by his Holy Spirit then you're convicted of your sin. You can actually turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, be be forgiven, and as a result, the Spirit will then help you to live in line with that relationship you have with God. That's the argument of Romans to this point in time. If that is the case, then can I say that it is impossible for anyone who does not put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ He doesn't have the spirit. It's impossible to please God because you do not have a relationship with God. Now, that is strikingly black and white. And let me say, I know it's not PC, right, to say Jesus is the only way to have a relationship with God, but that is the reality. A while ago, uh, I sat down with a friend that I'd had since my 20s. Uh, when we were back in our 20s, uh, he was someone who um, talked about 
having a relationship with God. I sat down with him just just a short, yeah, relatively short time ago. Uh, so this is you know thirty plus years later, and he was very clear that he no longer believed or trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ in any way. And this is what he asked me. He said, "If that is the case, do you think your God?" condemns me to hell, this God of love. Now, I I had this feeling like our relationship was at a crossroads, you know, (laughs) at this point. But, of course, that's exactly what I believe. It is. Like, it's a hard truth. But see, either Jesus died for sin so that people can have a relationship with God or it's a complete waste of time. You, you, You can't get it both ways. Either... The offer of life in Jesus and by the work of the Spirit is real, or it's not. And that's the reality. It goes on. It talks about the way the Holy Spirit gives life to our mortal bodies. Look at verse 10. If Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Uh, sin brought death into the world and with it grief and heartache and sadness and loss. But the Holy Spirit transforms our thinking about the future. So we heard that this morning, you know. How would I, how would I, uh, you know, uh, get to see God die, right? That's just, now most of us in polite conversation wouldn't say that, but, uh, but it's true, isn't it? And there's a sense in which that is a transformed way of thinking. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. A couple of years ago, I was preaching uh, on something, and I, death and resurrection from, from the dead, and I explained that in our family, the men generally die of heart attacks roughly at the age I'm at right now, okay? They, or they have heart attacks and recover, you know, and then die of heart attacks. But, you know, basically that's the way it works in our family. The women in Sue's family all live into their 90s. They're incredibly long-living matriarchs, you know. And so I said, basically, we've worked out that we're going to be we're going to be married, and Sue will be a you know a widow widow for as long as we're married, you know, basically equal proportions, 30 of each, you know. And uh, afterwards, afterwards, someone came up to me and said, "Don't be so negative." Uh, I'm sure God is going to give you a very long life, and you'll have fruitful and you'll live into your 80s or 90s and I thought I mean I'm not saying it's not going to happen right but what I was saying was it doesn't matter I mean it might matter it'll affect Sue probably but uh (laughs) but do you know what I mean like it's not it's not the point Christ will raise us from the dead for an eternal relationship with God that will be uninterrupted isn't that wonderful news the Spirit of God, by his word, brings that conviction home and frees you, frees you from fear, frees you to actually know what life is all about. Isn't it wonderful the way the Holy Spirit reveals key things about our relationship with God? What then happens when you get to the second part of this, this um, section we're looking at this morning, verses 12 to 17? is that it then talks about how the Holy Spirit leads us. Did you pick it up? Verse 14 of chapter 8. Those who are 
led by the Spirit, are children of God. Now, actually, this it's quite a threatening verse in some ways, isn't it? Um, see, if I say to you, are you led by the Spirit? It's, it's another code way of asking, are you a Christian? Because if you're not led by the Spirit, you don't have the Spirit, and you're not of God, actually. See, so it's quite, quite confrontational. But what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Is it talking about how we make decisions? You know, the Spirit will guide us into knowing where we should live or what sort of house we should buy or how much we should spend on a house or whether we should change jobs, what colour we should paint the kitchen. You know, like, what does God lead us into? How does he guide us? Is that what's being referred to? I, I have friends who talk as if God is constantly guiding them through almost every decision in life. Uh, and it feels like they've got this 1,000 watt sort of relationship with God. And I feel like maybe I've got a 25 watt relationship with God. And it doesn't feel quite as spectacular and, and interactive. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? It's really clear from this section what it means. It means to put to death sin, verse 13. Uh, verse 12 talks about the obligation or debt we have to God. And in verse 13, it's elaborated. Our debt is to put to death the misdeeds of the body, to reject sin, that is, whatever is inconsistent with the relationship with God. Uh, if you're looking for clues on that, just go back to Romans 1. You know, it talks about greed or gossip or envy or jealousy or sexual immorality, living a life in relationships that's inconsistent with the way God wants us to lead it. See, to be led by the Holy Spirit at this point is not about guidance or making decisions. It's about holiness, living to please God. So are you led by the Spirit? Sometimes I talk to believers who say, I'm not sure I'm led by the Spirit because I'm really struggling with temptation. I find uh, myself really gripped by worry or fear or desire for more money. Or I find myself in a situation where I'm battling with uh, pornography or I'm struggling with anger. It just seems to rise to the surface all the time. And I know the Bible says I shouldn't go on being angry. So they think, well, maybe I'm, I'm not being led by the Spirit. Can I say, if you are struggling with sin then that is a sign that you have the Spirit of God at work in you because you have that sense of needing to reject sin and you know that there is a struggle going on. You see, those who don't have the Spirit are slaves to sin. They're just caught up in it. Those who have the Spirit wrestle with and struggle with sin and desire to be holy. And it's also the way in which the Holy Spirit leads us into a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Verse 15. The spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Um, Just try and pick up the sequence of thinking here. If you don't have the spirit, you're not a Christian, you're a slave to sin and you have a distance in your relationship with God, fear of God. It's understandable because you stand under his judgment, right? No spirit, not a Christian, slave to sin, fear of judgment. 
But if you have the Spirit, then you are a Christian and you put together the misdeeds of the body, that is, you put to death sin, and you have intimacy of relationship with God because Jesus has died for sin to give you that relationship. Do you understand what a striking contrast those sort of patterns are? And the picture that we're getting here is of what they talk about in legal terms as double jeopardy. That is, uh, at law, someone who is punished for a crime, convicted and punished for a crime, cannot be convicted and punished again for the same crime. Uh, It's a double jeopardy situation. In theological terms, biblical terms, it's exactly the same. That is, if Jesus is the one who has been punished and died for your sins and you have put your trust in Jesus, you cannot be punished for your sins because he already has been punished for your sins. You see the way in which double jeopardy works at that point. Verse 15, the spirit you received has brought about your adoption as sons. Adoption as sons. Uh, in our family, we have three kids, uh, Ben, Kate and David, right? All natural born, not adopted, so we're stuck with them, okay? And that's just the way it works. When they're born into your family, you can't get rid of them. Uh, that's, that's the nature of it. But when you adopt a child, that's a decision, isn't it? It's a decision to adopt sight, seeing, knowing about the, the situation. God adopts us as his children. He knows what we're like. He knows the nature of our sin. And he knows what he has done in his son in order to bring us into relationship with him. That is the reality. And we get all the benefits of being in that family and the security that comes with that. And so what happens here in Romans 8? It then talks about the the intimacy that we have with God. Verse 15. By the Spirit, we as adopted children, we cry... Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Some relationships you have are um, very relaxed and at ease. Some are more formal. Uh, A few years ago, uh, because of the role that um, I have as sort of the senior minister of Trinity in town, uh, Sue and I were invited to government house for a meal. But it was was actually just a private meal with Sir Eric Neal and his wife, who was the governor at that time. He wanted to have a chat to us about something. So we actually had this sort of intimate foursome, a government house around the kitchen table. Right? There was just the four of us and a servant and a cook. You know, it was just sort of just very intimate. You know, (laughs) but it's funny really because sort of it was meant to be casual, but I got this this note in the post to tell me what I should wear for this informal kitchen little meal, you know, because it was government house. And uh, and sitting down around the table, I didn't say, G'day, Eric, right? I still called him Sir Eric, you know, and uh, Sir Eric passed the peas. You know, it was that, you know, it was, there was sort of a level of formality, even though it was more casual. In terms of our relationship with God... The Spirit brings us into intimacy. What does that intimacy look like? It's not Your Excellency God. It's not Sir God. Notice what we're being told here. It is Abba, Father. Now, 
It is very difficult to get a 21st century equivalent of that. Uh, people try, they, they say, well, it's, you know, dear dad or daddy, you know, or dearest father or, but none of those, none of those really capture it for me. And I suspect that those titles work for some of us and not for others. Abba Father was the way in which Jesus prayed to his heavenly Father. In Mark chapter 14, verse 36, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows he's about to go to the cross and to die and to suffer enormous pain. He knows that his close followers are going to abandon him. And there he is in the garden praying by himself. It's a crisis. And this is how he prays. He prays, Abba, Father. Do you understand what's going on here? This is the one that you cry out to in your greatest moment of need. This is the one who loves you. This is the one who is trustworthy. This is the one who will always look out for you. You will never escape his sovereign care and compassion. Abba, Father. Now, I don't know your relationship with your dad in this world, but can I say this Heavenly Father, he will never let you down. No, never. And then finally we're told, verse 17, the Spirit leads us into our inheritance. Verse 17, if we're, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Inheritance. It's always good to inherit. Uh, that, that's always fun. Uh, that is the consequence, uh, the, the results. What do we get as heirs, heirs of God? Well, we're told here that we are co-heirs with Christ. Isn't that an interesting Interesting phrase, co-heirs with Christ. Do you understand what we're being told here? Uh, we are receiving what Jesus himself receives. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? You know, like, I want you to imagine just for a moment that Jesus was sitting here in the very presence of this room somewhere, Right? Uh, I'm not trying to be a heretic. I'm just saying, let's, let's just imagine for a moment he was here. And the Heavenly Father was looking down on us. Which of us do you think he would love the most? Huh? We are co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we get all, all the same treatment that God gives his own son because of what that son has done for us, Co-heirs with Christ in heaven. That's a wonderfully secure position to be in, isn't it? And that comes home to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a, a wonderful chapter on what it means to be in relationship with God. So when you think about spirituality... Uh, it is a real buzzword today, actually. It's still a buzzword, and I think it'll keep on being a buzzword for us. And it's all about um, self-discovery, finding yourself. 
But friends, Christian spirituality is so totally different. See, where does God's Holy Spirit, where does the Holy Spirit lead us? Uh, Not into a, a job or a house or a car or a marriage or a church or even vocational gospel ministry. That, that's not the emphasis of the Bible. That's not where the focus is. Where does the Holy Spirit lead us? Into something much better, much deeper, much richer. Holiness of life. That's freedom. Intimacy with God. Because we are forgiven. Because Christ has died for us and risen from the dead. An assurance that we will dwell with him for all eternity. Privileged, just like his own son. We are his children. That's the reality. Isn't it wonderful to be believers who have the spirit of God convicting us of these truths? It's a great thing. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, this is a wonderful part of your word. Uh, that just brings home to us the riches of relationship with you. Uh, The freedom, the forgiveness, the knowledge of your love, all achieved through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to this world to call people like Zacchaeus. Little ones, weak ones, sinful ones. Father, we thank you that that is your nature. And Father, we pray that we will keep understanding and realising all the riches that are ours in the Lord Jesus Christ, our co-heir, to understand. Father, we pray you'll keep stirring us up by your spirit that that the Christian life will not be mechanical, rules-driven, but rather an intimate relationship with you based on all you've done for us through your son. Father, we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.